This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. We're going to be doing our reading in a moment out of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. May the Lord bless the reading of his own word to us today. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to praise you for this amazing piece of writing. We know that your spirit has inspired it and that it has been given to us that we might have a full and deep understanding of who Jesus is. May he shine through as glorious to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's kind of strange to me. This is one of my favorite pieces of text. And I have actually never preached on this text. Never. So I thought I'd try and correct that today. But I don't know if you know, but the the reason why John writes the Gospel of John is in order that you might hear and believe. That's his purpose. He wanted you to know all that Jesus is and all that he is worth. This prologue gives you an understanding of who the man Jesus Christ is throughout the rest of the gospel. Now, sorry, James, you've been with me on a Thursday night as we've had a Bible study in this text That's part of what got me so excited about preaching it. 
But for the rest of you, please have your text open because you are going to need it. And hopefully we can do it justice in about 35 minutes. So, the point, the point of 1 John, 1 through 18, is that only when you are gripped by who and how amazing Jesus is, will you fully perceive how important his coming is. That's why he writes all of this. And this is actually one of the best pieces of prose in Greek that has ever been written. Uh, if you have a look, I don't know if you can see this. Those, I actually have my Greek text here with me. We're not going to use that very much, but it is important. So the text opens with this idea about the beginning. in the beginning was the Word. Now, what does that make you think of? When you think about in the beginning was the Word, what does that make you think of? Creation. Great answer, Dulcie. There, there's a lot of discussion about this word logos. This is the Greek word for word. This word logos. A lot of, a lot of deep thought about the Greek usage and what the concept of logos is and how it's the, how it's the basic, the, the summary of all understanding. I don't think that that's what John has in picture here. I think he's thinking of creation. And when God spoke... Everything came into existence. The beginning of Genesis 1-1 begins in a very similar way in the Greek Septuagint. The idea of in the beginning. So in the beginning was this, this word. And if you think about the word as the one that, that God spoke and that was his creative power and everything came into existence through him. That's what was there with God in the beginning. The, the idea of beginning for us, when we think of beginning, our mind might actually go back to creation. And that's, that's a really good point. But you've got to think about it. Before there was light, before God spoke and every, anything else came into being, when God was there, so was his eternal word. So was the Logos. And so here you have a, a divine person speaking. And that apparently is another divine person. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the, and the Word was God. You have two beings who are each called God. I'm going to use another word for God, and that's Yahweh. Yahweh. This one who Israel knew through covenant, who came and revealed himself to Israel who said to Moses, I am who I am. That's who's meant here by God. And there are two that are each called this God. And yet we do not have two gods. My motivation for starting here is because I want to do a, a quick run through when, when I get back in a couple of weeks, starting through the Apostles' Creed. And starting to give us a really full-orbed understanding of who God is is. The reason is, is simple. Number one, because I think that thinking about God is a spectacular thing for you to do. We should, we should ponder who God is, who he has revealed himself to be. But also, because at times, because we are weak, me included, the understanding of what the text has given us can get a little complex. I mean, even this statement, there is one God, one. 
Hero Israel, our Lord is one. This is Deuteronomy 6. This is the Shema. God is one. But in the introduction to John, there are each two that are this one God, Yahweh. This is where we get this distinction, the idea that there are two persons. Actually, there's a third person here. The Holy Spirit's not actually mentioned in this text, but we actually wouldn't expect him to be. There are two places where Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 14 and John 16. In those places, Jesus talks about the fact that he's going to send the Spirit and that the Spirit is going to lead us into all truth or lead his disciples into all truth and that he's going to give testimony about Jesus. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but up on our Facebook page, there's a beautiful picture that we got on Easter morning, early Easter morning, and uh, you can see Dan with his hand in the air, and you can see Mike here, and you can actually see Larry, who's visiting with us again today. And you can see quite a number of people, but you can't see me. But I'm there. I'm taking the picture. And this is the same with the Holy Spirit. This, this is a triune act. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit doing the, the work of revealing who these two are. So this is actually a triune act, and all of salvation is a triune act. But they didn't need us. They didn't need the world. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this one God, Yahweh, stood before creation. As far back as you can push the beginning, this is what's in mind. There was God. There was His Word. I want to give you a slight detour for a second. Uh, you might meet some that'll say, well, this isn't, this isn't really, you know, the Logos isn't really God. He's just some God. Um, maybe at times the angels are kind of referred to as God. It's not what's in picture here. The eternal word is the subject. His, he is the one who's up in neon lights. He is as God as the other God. This is a revelation about who the eternal word is. And if all of a sudden you have the Father who is God, and then a completely separate entity, one who's perhaps a created entity, but the highest of all, who's also truly to be called God and worshipped as God, you all of a sudden have two gods. And it's not us who are responsible for polytheism, this idea that we worship more than one God. We worship one God. Think about that for a moment. One God in unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'd love to go a little bit Greek, deeper in the Greek text, but I won't. There is this idea that here you have one who is called God and another who have turned called God towards one another, facing one another, knowing one another. They know each other. There's actual interaction between these two. We're going to talk more about that interaction in the coming weeks. But there is this 
unity between the two in that they are one, but still a distinction. That's who brought the world into being. That God. So not only was he in the beginning with God, verse 2, but all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that kind of sounds a bit redundant, that second statement, does it? Everything that was made, that was made. But it's not. Because there are, there are some things, some people that exist that were never made. And so here you have two categories given in verse 3. There is that which is made and that which is doing the making. Have a look at the text. All things that were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Where does the word fit? The eternal word of God fits in the category of creator. Everything else in creation fits in the other category of created. And so the word himself is that which brings into existence all that has been brought into existence. That's part of what it means for him to be God. And we're told in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, for those of you who don't spend a lot of time reading theological books, uh, there's a concept that's taught here about the idea that God has life in himself. You don't. You don't. Nothing else in all of creation has life in themselves. Somebody brought you, in fact, two somebodies brought you into existence. You don't have life within yourself, but the eternal word actually has life in and of himself. In him was life. The eternal word, we, we know that this must be true of the Father. We know that this must be true of God. In him, there was, in, he naturally has life in himself. He doesn't need anybody else to give him life. But this is also true of the eternal word. Do you see the grandeur that's put on the word, on the logos? He is the very spoken word that brought everything else into existence. He is, he is part of the creator. He's not part of the created. He is part of that distinction. He has life naturally existing within himself. Nobody grants him life. We're told that this life was the light of men, the light that shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think back to creation. It's the very first thing that God creates. Light. The idea of going back to creation and this idea of, of light, his life being the light of men, particularly for John, is the fact that light is revelation. Life is God making all things known, revealing who he is. And we know that God actually does do this in creation. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In these things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. This is that idea for John. The idea from John is that, that, that the light has gone out into the world. 
because Jesus exists, because the Word of God exists. And just how the light went out and spoke about the existence of God, so all of creation does. All of creation screams out that there is a God. But man, being man, suppresses that truth, refuses to look at creation and acknowledge the existence of God. And so God had to come another way. If you're going through, John, this idea of light and dark have moral consequences. One of my favorites comes from John 3, where the teacher of Israel, probably the leader of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus and he comes to him by night. This is not a reference to the day. For John, this is an idea that Nicodemus was still in darkness as to who Jesus was. And so Jesus gives light to men. He opens their eyes. He helps them to see who God is. He helps them to correct their natural inclination to suppress the truth about who God is. In Jesus Christ, God has spoken. I think it's interesting that John's mind goes to John the Baptist. Now, who, when they were little, admit it, looked at verse 6 and went, why is John talking about himself? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is obviously not John, the gospel author. This is John the baptizer. This is John the Baptist. He comes and he bears witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. This same idea gets picked up in verse 15. John wore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, in chronological time, that's not true. John is the older cousin. And yet he says of Jesus, he ranks before me because he actually comes before me. We don't often think about it like this. But in the Jewish mindset, particularly in the first century, you were better simply because you were older. If you're an older person, you win. You win the argument, hands down. And so this is a quite unusual thing for John to say. He's the older of the two cousins. But Jesus actually comes before him. But the reason why John is used here is because he was held in such high regard to the Jewish nation. He was seen as a prophet. Jesus recognized him as a prophet in Matthew 11. And he says in Matthew 11, 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus recognizes that John the Baptist is the greatest person ever born of a woman. Which is everybody. Everybody's been born of a woman. And John the Baptist recognizes that this one is who he came to bear witness about. So John builds on this, this idea from going from uh, this, this eternal God who exists as the Word, and now he's building upon that through his testimony about John. This is supposed to add to all that he's just said about the eternal, the, the eternal nature of who Jesus is. He is the one who John came to bear witness about. To give light, to point light. 
Verse 9, we have that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, if he is the light, if that's his job, his job is to come into the world and to grant light to all people, why is it that some people, particularly his own, don't recognize him? John doesn't give us an answer, but the answer is exactly what's been said already. The fact that, that in creation, God's given so much revelation, but mankind suppress it. But the reason why John here points this out is because he doesn't want you to be in the same boat. He doesn't want you to miss what he's doing, who he is showing, who he is revealing. He's saying it is possible Actually, for even God's own people, the the people of of, of Israel, to have Jesus come to them, work his miracles, do all that he does in front of them, and for for, for him to be missed. He doesn't want that to happen to any of us. Verse 12 says, All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Of God. That's why. There were some actually genuinely who who saw, and John was one of them. Both John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer, they, they came to see who Jesus was. They came to understand who it is that Jesus is. And he's able to say he he grants to these people. Those who believe in his name, he grants to those people that they can become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John, this is the point. The point is that those who have the scales fall from their eyes and they they see and they receive the light of Jesus Christ... That's not been done because of their ability, their strength, their wisdom, their holiness, their piety. God has done that. He's worked in them a miracle. Not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And so we have two things here. We have firstly this idea that Jesus genuinely comes as the light of the world. He comes and he, he reveals who God is. He, he, he does all of these miraculous things. He's the final spoken word of God. And there are some who reject him, specifically his own people. And then there, there are some who receive him. So we have on this one hand this idea that, that it's, it's very true that they, it can be said of people that they can either reject or receive who Jesus is. There is an act of will here. This is a responsibility upon all people. All people everywhere must grapple with who Jesus is. Some will reject, some will believe. But ultimately, we bear the responsibility for that. But then on the flip side, on the other side of that coin, there is this idea that that actually, those people who do believe in Jesus... 
They don't have anything within themselves that they can be prideful about. You can never look at yourself and say, well, of course I believed in Jesus. Look how brilliant I am. All of us must admit that if we come to trust in Jesus Christ, we come to trust in Jesus Christ because God did a work upon us. That we're not actually, we're not actually like those who reject God. People who reject God do so by acting according to their own nature. Something different happens to us. We are born. Born again. Born anew. Born afresh. If you've got an NIV, it might not say, nor of the will of man. It might say, not according to husband's will. Not according to husband's will. Basically means the same thing. Uh, this is because in Greek, the, man, the word for uh, man and the word for husband is the exact same word. Really helpful. But the idea is the same. No man has brought this about. This has been done by God. It's a miracle. Then we go back to the word. The idea is that Jesus is the glory of God. Before we get into this text, I want you to think about something for a moment. For those who know the story about Moses going up to Sinai, he goes and he, he downloads from the, from the cloud the, the law of God, and he comes down from the mountain, and he's shining. He's glowing, and he doesn't know it. But Aaron freaks out, and all the people freak out. We get this story in Exodus 34, 29 and 35. Paul says, speaking of this idea in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he says that the reason why Moses shone was because he had been in the glory of the Lord. It's sort of like the moon. The moon reflects the glory of the sun doesn't produce any light within itself. This is actually a controversial statement today. But the, the, the moon does not reflect, any, it doesn't produce any light in of itself. It reflects the glory of the sun. This is what Moses was doing. He, he was reflecting and shining back to the people the glory of God. If you know the story well, you'll know that Moses was never actually able to see God. God hides Moses. He protects Moses. He passes by the people. Moses, in the presence of God, never actually seeing God, Moses, in the presence of God, comes away from that experience shining like the moon. If you think about the temple, when the temple is filled with the glory of God in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 and 2, when, Mo, when Solomon is, is dedicating the temple, the glory of God fills the temple. And the priests, the ones who are supposed to have authority to walk in the temple and, walk, and work in the temple, they weren't able to walk into the temple. They weren't able to do their job because the glory of God so filled that place. But they never actually see God. They merely see his glory, and his glory is so overwhelming. 
And now we think, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This idea of dwelling among us is the same idea or the same word for tabernacled. It's a verb, tabernacled. If you think about what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament, it's the place where God specifically made His glory known and manifest because of Moses and the law and all that was given through Him. And what was the tabernacle made out of? Does anyone remember originally? Not the temple, but the tabernacle. Skins. Flesh. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. He tabernacles among us, this eternal word, this one who's all these amazing things have been said about. This is the, the one who is the word of God and he is actually God himself and he's with God and he's there in the beginning and he's creating all of these amazing things. And in fact, he's uncreated. He has life in himself. This one comes in flesh and he tabernacles among us. And we have seen his glory. This is what John's saying. Moses was not able to stand and see God. The priests were not able to walk into the temple of Solomon because the glory had overcome it. And John's like, God comes in flesh and we've seen him. You see how amazing that is? This is his point. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. We learn something new here as well. But I don't want you to miss the glory. This is actually the the idea. The glory which filled the temple, which left the temple in Ezekiel 10, that glory has now been manifest or tabernacled through the Word. And then this Word is called a Son from the Father. The church throughout the ages has understood this not to simply be an adoption, but this to be an actual truth about who these are. The word is a son begotten of the father. This is actually what the only son, only son means. It comes from the Greek word monogeneus. Our older translations, if you've got a King James version of the Bible, it gets it right here. It's the word begotten. Begotten is actually, it's not a very common word. We don't use it very much in, in modern vernacular, but it's a really good word. Uh, one of our things I, that I love to do, and in fact, uh, I worked at uh, Pacific Valley, one of the schools doing it for a while. I, I love to make things. I love to build with timber. But it's never true. It doesn't matter how intricate these things are that I built in timber. It could never be said that I begot it. It's always a created thing. Those of you who have had children, they are begotten of you. To be begotten of you means to be of the same nature. A son is begotten of his father because the father is human and the the son is human and the son comes actually from the father. This is why begotten is a really good translation of the word monogonaeus. He is the only son, that's fine. You can hear that in the, in the word monogonous. Mono, only, genesis, beginning. 
But this word was revealed through John to be the son of the father, which means he must be begotten of the same nature. Again, this is not something that we necessarily think about a lot in our modern world. But you have a nature. Everything that exists has a nature. A rock has a nature. God has a nature. He exists. There is a single existence within God. One. This is what we mean when we confess that God is one. This is what we mean. One existence. Simple. And yet, the Father begets a Son from that one nature. This is where we get the idea of the Trinity from. There's a Father, there is a Son. And the Son has come and revealed God, displayed His glory. And we have the fullness of grace and truth. We have received grace upon grace, John says. The reason is, the reason we receive grace upon grace is because the law, which in the Jewish mindset is the original word of God, this, this, this thing that God came and he spoke and he told us his will. This idea of Torah comes from Moses. And when we commonly think of law, we don't necessarily think of it being a grace we commonly think of it as a curse because Paul talks about the law being a curse. But it's not. Not in the ultimate sense. It becomes a curse because we can't keep it and it condemns us. But the law is a grace. But not only that, because we've had Jesus, we have grace upon grace. We've had the law come through Moses. The Torah has come through Moses. And grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And this one who's been identified as the Word and as the Son of God is finally named. He is Jesus Christ. And then he sums up everything else, he says in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If you're aware of Isaiah 6... You might be aware that Isaiah saw God. Every time anybody reports having seen God in the Old Testament, having wrestled with God, having spoken with God, having eaten with God, it was always the Word. It was always the Son. The Son is Yahweh made known to us. There is a God that no one has ever seen, and you can't see God. This is actually what's wrapped up in what it means to be God. God is spirit. But Jesus, the eternal word, has made God known. He has been seen. This one who existed and now exists forever at the Father's side. He has been the final spoken word of God. All of this to say, Jesus is magnificent. <laughs> that you might contemplate all of this and trust me, we could go on for a lot longer. But all of this to say something so simple. Jesus is magnificent. 
And although it's true that in bygone eras, in times gone past, people weren't able to actually have a, a, a real relationship with God in, 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 in a tangible sense, they had to approach Him through signs. They had to approach Him through shadows and, and types. That's not true for us. We get to have a relationship with God directly through Jesus Christ. We've actually had people, people like John, who have seen Jesus. They walked with him. They did ministry with him. They ate with him. They watched him die. They watched him raised to life. And after all of that, they came away convinced that this is the word of God, who is the eternal one. That they got to experience the glory of God, a glory that was so magnificent that Solomon's priests were not able to enter into the temple. They experienced the humble man, Jesus Christ. We shouldn't think small thoughts of the humble man, Jesus Christ. Our hearts should be captivated by him. I hope that from this, perhaps a little bit more, your minds are opened up to all that Jesus is. It's a good thing to ponder who he is. It expands you. More than that, though, it inspires worship from you, that Jesus might be worshipped for all that he is worth. Why don't we pray? Lord God, we thank you so much for Jesus, all that he is to us. We know that he has been made known to us, revealed to us through Scripture, through that word. But also he is the final word, the final speaking of his God, his Father, and also our God. Lord, help us to be gripped by him. Help our lives to emulate him. Never let us think small thoughts of him. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would be at work at us as we chew on this, as we meditate upon the words that John has given us. And we're thankful for them, as we are with all that you've spoken. And we thank you for this, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.